I have a wonderful mother-in-law who happens to have kept every single little thing from my husband's upbringing that she is now passing down to me. This is Meg from southeastern Pennsylvania, and I have a question about evening primrose oil. Failure to descend falls into the exact same category as failure to be patient. Um, I mean, failure to progress, which... It's also failure to be patient. And my question is about how to create a small breast milk stash without creating an oversupply issue. I was in labor for 55 hours and pushed for three and a half before ultimately having a C-section. Here's a good one. Is it possible to orgasm differently during and after pregnancy? Nope. It's always going to be the same orgasm. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hello from Ontario. Hello, Trisha. I'm stuck up here in Canada. You're at your camp and you have a baseball cap turned around backwards on your head, which has been the theme of the whole (laughs) summer that I've been overdressed for you, even when we had dinner a month ago. Well, I'm in camp attire now. You know, it's a whole new set of, it's a whole new wardrobe. That's right. That's all right. So we got a lot of, first of all, we got great feedback on our new format of audio questions. So we want to thank everyone for calling in with your questions and remember to do that. Our number is 802-438-3696. That's 802-GET-DOWN. <laughs> I love and, it. You know, when we first, when we, when we first got that phone number, it was like, do people really still use the phone number ever? Do people even make phone calls anymore? And we didn't use it for the longest time. And now all of a sudden it's blowing up. I remember procuring Get Down and I was so excited to tell you the news and I shared it with you and like in our little team and you were just looking at me and I was like, come on, Trisha, don't tell me you don't love that. And you were like, okay, <laughs> but it's so perfect. Um, it, uh, so put it us in your contacts. It does totally work and it represents us and it's who we are. So put us in your contacts, call us anytime, 24-7, our voicemail will pick up, and uh, we're going to get started right away with this month's questions. Hi, Cindy and Trisha. I am calling in because I had a question about gaining and or maintaining weight while breastfeeding. Um, I just had my first baby at home um, last week, actually, on the 7th, and It was an amazing home birth. Um, Prior to getting pregnant, I was trying to gain weight. I've always been super petite. I'm 5'1". I was 102 pounds when I got pregnant and 131 when I gave birth. Um, I'm quickly losing weight. I don't want to um, lose too much weight. So I was just curious as to um, how I can maintain my weight where it's at. I'm about 110, 111 at this moment. So just curious what tips you had um, and any advice. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. What do you say? Well, no doubt breastfeeding takes a tremendous amount of energy from the body if you're 
exclusively breastfeeding. It's actually more than pregnancy. So um, you have to continue to focus on eating sufficient amounts in breastfeeding, just like you do in pregnancy, but it's even more calories. So 300 and 300 to 350 extra calories per day are required throughout pregnancy and four to 600 extra calories per day are required during breastfeeding. So I usually recommend the same strategies that we talk about in pregnancy, small, frequent meals and an emphasis on protein and higher calories at each meal. Okay. That sounds good. I mean, here's my question. Does she have a legitimate concern? Like, should she actually be a little concerned about her weight falling back to her pre-pregnancy weight so quickly? What's the, what's the issue? Well, I think she's just worried about getting too thin, which can happen. And then would that impact milk supply or something? Well, it just takes up all your reserves. You know, if you get too thin, then your body is working with a lot less nutritional reserve. So I think it's more about just protecting her nutritional reserves and she probably doesn't want to be too thin. Um, So I don't think it's about calorie counting at all. I would never suggest counting calories, but just being aware that those are the additional needs. And I think when people are breastfeeding, a lot of times they're very worried about getting their pre-pregnancy. They're worried about getting back to their pre-pregnancy weight. They're worried about shedding the pregnancy pounds. So they often eat less when they're breastfeeding. And that would be depleting. Very few people. Yeah, it's depleting. I mean, breastfeeding takes a lot from your body and so does pregnancy. So you have to continue to replenish sufficiently so that you don't get postnatal depletion, which is a real thing. Hello, Cynthia and Trisha. Thank you for your show. I'm wondering if you have any advice for women who have had multiple miscarriages who are wanting to get pregnant. I have a fertility specialist appointment set up um, in the next couple of months to try to figure out what's going on with my own pregnancy losses. I've had a couple losses before the seven-week mark, um, and we've tested progesterone levels. Um, I'm just not quite sure what's going on, and we'll be visiting a specialist to um, do some additional testing in the next few months, but just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on um, multiple miscarriages and how a person could further investigate those losses. Thank you. My first thought is my, my interpretation of her question is she has had a couple of losses. So in my mind, that's two. Um, So that's one assumption I'm making that could be false and that she lost them before seven weeks. I mean, my, my honest feelings are, uh, everyone takes and handles miscarriage so differently, and I've experienced miscarriage myself. And my honest feelings are it's so much more common than I think anyone recognizes. And I think experiencing a loss around the time of the heartbeat starting at five and a half or so weeks is really, really common. And so she said a couple before seven weeks. I personally don't view that as necessarily a problem. Um, it's obviously very difficult to deal with, but my concern is any woman developing negative beliefs, like I have trouble conceiving or I experience miscarriage. It is so common. I mean, I once remember sitting at a mom's night out with like nine or 10 women and every single one of us that evening had, um, at least one miscarriage story to share. So I always feel for women when it happens before they've ever had their first child, because they, they form these beliefs. And that's always my concern. Um, So now she's having her hormones checked and, you know, that can be such a rabbit hole of doubting the body. And 
my guess is she probably doesn't have a hormone problem at all. And she did conceive. And um, I don't really have any advice or thoughts other than in my own personal life. Um, if I would want to make sure my hormones are in balance, my first thought is, is food. Like just going to a clean whole foods diet is probably the very best thing you can do for your hormones or for your body at large, in addition to getting good quality sleep. And those are my only thoughts. I don't have anything I don't think more more valuable than those. What, what do you think, Trisha? Oh, I think those are great thoughts. Um, I would agree with you that miscarriage is extremely common. It happens in probably one out of three pregnancies, um, often un, often unknown. Sometimes you just have a period and you didn't know that you actually you know could have been pregnant, um, or you have a late period and it turns out to have been an early miscarriage. One out of five known pregnancies miscarry. I believe that's the accurate statistic. So that's 20% of pregnancies, but probably um, unknown, it's higher than that. But the good news is that the vast majority who have multiple miscarriages still go on to have a healthy pregnancy. So as you said, we don't want to form that belief. There are certainly some um, underlying conditions that can predispose a woman to multiple miscarriages, such as thyroid imbalances, diabetes and blood sugar issues, um, autoimmune conditions, the genetic variant of the MTHFR gene uh, is, a, is a common reason. So I would, I, I believe in practice, it's usually standard, standard that if you've had three or more miscarriages, we start digging a little bit deeper into the gen genetics and underlying conditions. Um, just to do a tiny bit of math, because I, you know, I can't, I got to be me, Trisha. And if it is one in three pregnancies, that means there is an 11% chance that a woman will experience uh, two miscarriages in her first two pregnancies. So there's a one in three chance for her first, but there's an 11% chance that she'll have two miscarriages before her third pregnancy. So that's not out of the realm of normal. It's quite common. Um 11% of women can have two miscarriages if, the, if those initial statistics are correct about one in three. And I believe they are, especially when you include early losses like this. Well, if you include that number includes um, pregnancies that are not known about. So that's the assumption. If you are, if it's a known pregnancy, it's one in five. Right. Right. So like the women who maybe had a heavy period or they got a late period and it was heavy. Yeah. But I, exactly. I I tend to trust those statistics because I do believe miscarriages are extremely common at the very, very beginning of pregnancy. They are. So just really quickly, uh, a very simple um, thing that a woman can do if she is worried about this or has had two miscarriages or even one and doesn't want to jump on to further testing is um, just some herbs to support progesterone levels. That's one of the most common reasons people miscarry is low progesterone. So Vitex is a great herb. Um, maca is another one. You can even do a natural progesterone cream. If you're a little bit older in your perimenopausal years and progesterone might be an issue, you can work with a functional medicine practitioner um, or an herbalist to help with these things. Do you mean maca like that powder you can buy and put in smoothies? Mm -hmm. That has a I nice do. taste yes. to it. I've put that in like chocolate, banana, peanut butter smoothies and quite enjoyed it. So it's an excellent supplement for women's hormonal issues. Hi, this is Meg from Southeastern Pennsylvania. And I have a question about evening primrose oil. 
I have read mixed information about taking evening primrose oil in late pregnancy. I'm 30 weeks now. I'll definitely be eating my dates. I'm already drinking raspberry leaf tea. Um, however, evening primrose oil seems to have mixed information out there. Some studies show that it can help ripen the cervix, and other studies show that women who take evening primrose oil end up with more interventions. What are your thoughts on this? I would love to know. I've been listening to the podcast for about six months every time I go on a drive, and I've learned so much. I was planning a home birth before this, but I just feel so much more informed, and I spent episodes to my boyfriend, my family members, so many people. So thanks for all the work that you do. Well, thank you for that question, Meg. And um, it's interesting when you, when women look up things and they say there's mixed information, because when you look into the mixed information, what you usually find is very little research on something. And then you find a whole lot of rhetoric that says, well, it's never been proved to help. And they say that about everything. I mean, I remember growing up and they were still saying that about vitamin C. Well, it's never, it's just a myth. It's never been proved to help, but we know conclusively that vitamin C, um, it definitely fights viruses in the body like zinc does. But the the fact of the matter is there just isn't ever going to be a lot of money poured into such research because who's really behind it and who would care to fund it. But there was um, a small study, I believe there were 86 participants where they studied primrose oil. And I found this to be really interesting. Um, Primrose oil can be administered vaginally or orally. So that's an important first distinction to understand. And in a study where it was taken vaginally, so it's like basically a pill, Tricia, that they dissolve near the cervix, right? Well, it's an oil and you break open the capsule and apply the oil directly to the cervix or insert it vaginally and it dissolves and the oil gets onto the cervix. So they did a randomized control trial that looked at the effects of administering evening primrose oil um, orally. And that didn't really show particularly strong results. There was like a little leaning toward um, some positive effects. But let me get into that with the one where they tested the inserts that are done vaginally. And it was a double blind study. So that means that um, neither the participants nor the researchers knew who had the actual primrose oil and who just had a random placebo that looked exactly like the primrose oil capsule. Um, all the participants were 38 weeks pregnant when they did this. And the evening primrose oil group received a thousand milligrams in a capsule daily that they took vaginally. And everyone in the study was told to lie down for two hours following the nightly capsule. That really surprised me. And then I realized they're just doing it before bed, right? Because who has the time? <laughs> Which they have to pay people to say, take this and lie down for two hours afterwards. <laughs> they probably That's just a good it. nap. Right? Yeah, seriously. Um, quite the luxury. Then they evaluated the Bishop score for each woman. Tricia, why don't you first jump in and explain what the Bishop score is? That's just an evaluation of the ripeness. Don't love that word, but that's how they define it of your cervix. So as far as its uh, degree of openness, softness, and effacement. So they're looking at all the factors that play a role in whether and induction is likely to be successful when they do inductions. It's a specific scoring system that takes into account those three factors. How how open the cervix is, how effaced it is, and where the baby station is. That's and it, it based on that Bishop's score, your likelihood for a successful induction goes up or down. And I think that's something a lot of women don't understand. They think induction just happens, but the truth is sometimes women are sent to the hospital for an induction 
for a good reason or a bad reason or no reason. And sometimes she's there all day long and they are cranking it up and it isn't really working and they have to keep adding interventions. And, you know, she has to understand that they really began that induction when her body was just nowhere near ready. And sometimes induction works very easily. They just do the slightest thing and it triggers labor. So that's what the Bishop score does. Trisha, do you think um, it's a little off topic, but do you think they typically care to look at the Bishop score when they're doing all these unnecessary inductions for women based on due dates? I mean, I've never heard of a woman being sent back home because her Bishop score wasn't high enough. Well, what they'll do is they'll give you a cervical ripening agent as the first part of the induction. So the, right, that's Cervidil. when you get the Foley catheter or you get the, or you get the Cervidil. Um, and um, that's why evening primrose oil is good because it acts like Cervidil. It acts like the prostaglandin in semen. That's why we always talk about having sex to try to help ripen your cervix and prepare your cervix. And midwives have been using evening primrose oil for ages. Yeah, midwives midwives have been using this forever, and they have been onto something. So in this in this study, the control group that had the placebo, their bishop score was just four point four six, but in the evening primrose oil group, it was seven point eight three. It was four point four six versus seven point eight three. So the evening primrose group had significantly, in addition to being having a higher Bishop score, um, when they all went into labor naturally, they went in with their bodies much more primed and ready to go right into active labor. The evening primrose group also had, this is where it really got interesting, significantly shorter labors of just four to five hours compared to eight to nine hours. And the C-section rate in the evening primrose group was 21% versus 47% in the other group. And Pitocin use, which I, you always have to take this part with a grain of salt because this is provider intervention here, but getting impatient and pushing labor along. So this is no surprise, but um, Pitocin use was 29% in the evening primrose group. You wonder why they used it at all, quite frankly, versus 62% in the control group. There was no difference in the length of active labor, postpartum hemorrhage, or APGAR scores. And there were no side effects reported. So Meg, whatever information you're seeing out there, um, I think this is pretty compelling. And the fact that there are no side effects reported, my gosh, no brainer, Trisha. I can tell you that I personally use it in all three of my pregnancies and always recommended women start it around 37 weeks pregnancy. You're kidding. I had if no they idea. Wanted, if they wanted to. Yeah. Wow, I, I had no idea you used it. I never used it. And I never, I never... I never used it. Um, do note these were all low risk women and definitely check with your doctor if you're already on some kind of medication in your pregnancy. That was the only caveat. Hi there, Trisha and Cynthia. I have a boundaries question. I'm hoping maybe you can guide me through. Um, I have a wonderful mother-in-law who happens to have kept every single little thing from my husband's upbringing that she is now passing down to me. Uh, we have the first grandson, and so we are getting inundated with cribs and blankets and, I mean, everything down to the socks that my husband wore in his six-month baby pictures. So she's just so excited for us to recreate uh, my husband's upbringing, and I'm not sure what to do with it all. Um, I'm I'm so grateful that she's wanting to help us out. Um some of the things I can't wait to use, but I have a basement full of furniture and boxes and just so much stuff 
that I feel bad donating because it's all sentimental to her, obviously. Um, she's kept it the last 40 years. <laughs> Some of the things I've talked her into keeping at her house for when we visit, but a lot of it has already been delivered to me. So I'm hoping you can give me some insight or maybe some tips on how to handle this situation. Uh, like I said, she's a wonderful woman and I love and cherish our relationship. So I'm not wanting to step on any toes. I'm just also not wanting to have a basement full of 40 year old baby things. Uh, thank you for everything you do do. Love the show. Bye. Well, first of all, let's have perspective here. You love your mother-in-law. I think we can assume she loves you. None. This is just stuff and stuff doesn't matter. What matters is you have a relationship that you are both enjoying and you love each other. Don't worry about this stuff. I have a mother-in-law who did the exact same thing. Whereas my mother throws everything out without a trace of guilt and has assured me I can always do the same. Um, and not to get sentimental over, over stuff, no matter what it is. My mother-in-law saved everything. And when we had a baby, I was really shocked. I mean, they, and they moved. My My husband grew up living internationally and like she carried this stuff for years and waited till she had a grandchild and some of it i'm not kidding you it was like stuffed animals i mean that stuff can have mites in it after years some of it was little hard covered books published in the 60s and we just what can you do you just have to get rid of it when you don't want it it has nothing to do with your love for her hopefully she's not prepared to give you a guilt trip but there's nothing to feel bad about and if you need a really good stark perspective in the other direction. There are two books I recommend, uh, highly recommend Kim John Payne's Simplicity Parenting. It is phenomenal. I think every parent should read it. It's just, it's such a great mindset. I don't think you're going to really get anywhere else. And if you want to go further, read um, read uh, Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, because she does have a segment on not getting rid of stuff in order to give it to someone else. It's no matter what, when you're getting rid of your stuff, don't give it to someone. Right. That's a big, no, that's a big no, no. That's actually like really putting a lot of burden on another person to give them your other, to give them your yeah. things. So the bottom line is be attached to people, not to stuff. Hey there, all you amazing, strong and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms to be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. 
Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Hey girl, my name is Mariah. I'm 22 years old and I'm from Los Angeles, California. I'm 20 weeks pregnant with my first child and your podcast has been such a lifesaver, especially since I'm planning on having an out-of-hospital birth. I've been doing a lot of research on bed sharing to help inform myself about the ways to do it safely. However, I can't seem to find the exact answer I'm looking for. I want to co-sleep in a way that is easiest for me while breastfeeding and that also allows my baby to bond with me. Is bed sharing an option for a newborn, and how can I do that safely with my husband sharing the bed as well? Or is getting a bassinet or bed attachment the best alternative? I want to do the least amount of moving around as possible at night, and the idea of having an extra attachment next to the bed just seems like an unnecessary extra step. Thank you so much for your amazing, informative podcast, and please keep up the good work. Okay. We haven't talked very much about co-sleeping on the podcast. We've touched on it, but um, I, I look forward to answering this. So you go ahead. Start. Well, I mean, my I like her question. She sounds already like she's experienced in this because um, she's thinking about how to do this without moving as much with, with minimal movement and disturbance to herself. I, I just have a couple things to say. One, what I found was in the early I don't remember anything now, like weeks, months in the early days of having a newborn, I definitely found it easier to lie um, with my baby, usually tucked in my arm. I believe the baby was often on, I don't remember their back or their side. I, I, I The baby was definitely safe because I'm a very light sleeper and that's normal. Um, but there's a point where the baby starts to move and become very active and they do disturb your sleep. And at one point I had a co-sleeper. And the plus side is you can sprawl out freely and you're not nervous about 
anyone bumping the baby or anything. But yeah, it is a real pain when the baby wakes up and you do have to basically sit up, lean yourself up, lift the baby and bring the baby into the bed. So my feelings are it's easiest to co-sleep in the early weeks or months um, and then easier to have the baby just nearby when they get active. I think Kelly Mom is one of the best resources for this. There are ways to responsibly co-sleep. If anyone tells you it's unsafe, um, it's linked to people who do it irresponsibly. They're drinking, they're doing drugs, they're falling asleep on couches. Um, there are very important measures to take, and then it is very safe when you take those measures. And the fact of the matter is that even with parents who say they're not going to co-sleep, more than half of them, if not three quarters of them, end up co-sleeping at some point, even if it's just a night here and there. So you might as well learn how to do it and understand how to do it safely. So the concern about the husband in the bed is simple. Um, You simply can put the baby on the outside of the bed and put yourself in between the baby and your husband. Therefore, you don't have to be worried at all about your husband being less attentive and attuned to the baby as you are. Sometimes people will say, well, what about the baby falling off the edge of the bed? Or what about rolling, rolling onto the baby? And I always remind mothers that, you know, they generally do not roll off the edge of their own bed because we are really actually a lot more aware when we're asleep than we realize. I mean, if we weren't, we would constantly be falling out of bed. (laughs) If we did not know <laughs> where the borders were. I never thought about that. It You're so right. No one falls off their own bed. I mean, now someone's going to write it and say, I fall off the bed. No, but really. Well, okay. It, to occasionally, no probably. We also don't roll over onto our husbands or our partners in bed without <laughs> intention, right? It doesn't typically happen. Um, we are much more aware of our surroundings while we're sleeping. So as you mentioned, um, a few things that are really critical for safe co-sleeping is that you are a non-smoker, that you are not drinking, that you are avoiding couches or reclining chairs, especially like big lazy boy type recliners. That is not a safe place to sleep with your baby. So a lot of people do do that. And that is considered unsafe co-sleeping. The baby should be dressed lightly so that they don't overheat. They should be um, technically on their back or their side, preferably the back, according to the guidelines. You should limit how many blankets and excess excess pillows and things are in the bed so that you can reduce any possible chance of suffocation. Exclusive formula feeding increases the risk of SIDS and exclusive breastfeeding dramatically reduces it. So that's another really important point. And having the baby on the edge of the bed, by the way, there's a really good technique for safely doing that. There's a technique with like um, a, a square baby blanket where you fold it, you have it open like a diamond and you put your own body under one corner, you put the baby in it, and then you wrap it around the baby. So the baby can't roll because you end up tucking two sides under your own body. And that was, that really gave me the peace of mind to allow me to sleep while the baby was on the edge, not the very edge, but the baby was on the end of the bed while my husband was in the middle. Cause I was worried about my husband moving around and not having the same awareness. Um, of course, I mean that just the worry would have kept me awake. Oh, yeah. One other thing I'll add is um, if you are worried about that, you can do what's called the cuddle curl where you sleep on your side and you kind of wrap your arm around the baby on the top end and tuck your knees up almost like you're spooning your baby. And that creates a little safe haven for your baby to be protected. And and your baby can't roll. They're not going to roll off the bed. So it's as long as they're not too close to the edge that you're not going to you know accidentally inadvertently push them off. 
but do read about it because you wouldn't want the baby on the edge of a bed if the wall is there because that actually is unsafe and the baby could potentially get between the the space of the bed and the wall. So uh, do read up on it. We're just giving you some um, sense of what you'll discover when you read about it. Hi, this is Megan from Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And my question is about how to create a small breast milk stash without creating an oversupply issue. So I'll be taking four months off after I have my baby and I teach piano lessons. So I only work about an hour or two per day, maybe three hours. I want to have a small stash available for my husband to feed the baby while I'm gone at piano lessons. My studio is also pretty close by, so he could probably bring the baby to me during my little breaks. Uh, So I don't need a huge breast milk stash because I'm not going back to work full time in any capacity. But I am wondering how I can do this without creating oversupply. Thank you so much. So easy question. Um, I, first of all, she's correct that she does not want to create an oversupply because oversupply can be equally or more problematic than low milk supply. In many cases, it's actually a lot harder to fix. Um, so what she wants to do really is, um, in my experience, if you want to s- save and store a little bit of milk without creating oversupply, you can pump one time a day generally first thing in the morning, because we have a little bit of extra milk in the morning. If your baby didn't nurse as much overnight, we also tend to produce a little bit more milk between midnight and noon. So I recommend taking your your first morning feeding that you do where you're sort of up and out of bed, feed the baby, then pump just up to two ounces. So you may only get half an ounce, three quarters of an ounce, a quarter of an ounce, but over time that will increase a little bit and you can store up to two ounces per day. If you go over two ounces, if you start overproducing three, four, five, six ounces a day, then we're in oversupply territory. Hi, I saw your post on Instagram about questions about pushing And I did actually have a question about it, um, and it has to do with when nurses are telling um, their patients not to push. I just wanted to know what your thoughts uh, were on this. Um, I've heard that a lot of nurses have said that as, you know, regarding if they're waiting on the doctor or, you know, I just wanted to get a little bit more information on this and just kind of wanted to get an idea of why they say that and what can happen if, um, if someone doesn't push or tries holding back. Um, So yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thank you so much. So my thoughts on that are that if nurses are trained to say that to women whose babies are about to emerge, then they're trained to abuse women because you cannot tell a woman whose baby is on its way out uh, through, through no force of her own doing. The natural expulsive reflex or the fetal ejection reflex, she can't stop that. And to tell her to stop it is, um, it's something you don't need to listen to or obey. I've said to my own clients, if I were on the way to a facility and I felt that moment happening, the baby's coming out, my first thought would be, well, we're going to need a new car because there is no stopping this. And the thought of it is heartbreaking to me. I can't, I, I hate that any woman has ever been told, close your legs, wait, why? So a doctor can be there and take credit later for delivering the baby that you're birthing. Sorry, this gets me really, really upset because it sounds like human torture to me. And it's very upsetting. There's my opinion and all my professionalism. Go ahead. I'm with you. The best thing you can do when that's happening is let that baby come. Let it happen. Just be there. 
you know, to hope somebody's there to help you receive the baby. And if they're not, you're just going to receive the baby yourself. And that will be perfectly fine. More women through the history of the world have received their own babies into their own hands than not since the beginning of time. I'm pretty sure our instincts will kick in just fine and we'll reach down and grab that baby and instinctively bring baby up to our chest and do all the right things to help them transition. And then when the doctor walks in a few minutes later, you can go, it turns out I didn't need you, doc, but I was really glad you were nearby just in case I did. Okay, wiki time. I love time. cookies. What is it? Why are cookies so fun? <laughs> we'll talk about that in another episode, Patricia. <laughs> Figure that out. I was talking about questions. Well, I, <laughs> okay. I, I know. <laughs> what else could you possibly have been talking about? Okay. First one. Here we go. You ready? I've got them. I'm always ready. Does sleeping on your back actually double your risk for stillbirth? So interesting. Interesting that people think this. Um, so I did actually look this up because I, I didn't really realize that people actually thought that because I've always talked about sleeping on your back is really not being um, that problematic. So there was one study that showed that women who went to sleep on their backs had a higher rate of stillbirth in those babies. However, it was only for women who went to sleep on their back. If you wake up on your back in the morning, that is not a risk. Only if you actually fall asleep on your back. So women who choose to sleep on their backs are at greater risk than women who actually do. Women who start out the night on their backs. Oh my gosh, that is such a right? weird study. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, so what I always tell people is... Um, the, the reason that this is a risk is because when you're on your back, the weight of your, this is not getting quick. The weight of your uterus reduces blood flow to the baby, right? But it also reduces blood flow to your brain. So you will generally feel it before your baby is going to be compromised and you will instinctively, intuitively get off your back. Now, if you're on your back, you can always prop up your one of your butt cheeks. And if you just get a little bit off your back, just tiny little something under your butt, it doesn't have the same effect. Uh, it doesn't reduce the blood flow. So that's it. Go to sleep on your side. You wake up on your back. Don't stress. If I hire a midwife, do I still need an OB? Oh my goodness, no. people. I, I forget <laughs> that our audience doesn't necessarily know the answer to this. As Trisha said, no. <laughs> okay, why? Let's just be quick about it. Your midwife is a medical caregiver, unlike a doula, unlike a childbirth educator, they are a medical caregiver. They don't do major surgery. So any midwife has a plan B where there can be an OB to step in should a C-section be required, but midwives can suture most tears. They can administer, they can oversee the administration of Pitocin and all the rest. So no, one of the best benefits is you don't need an OB ever right. again, even for your annual exams or anything. Right. You only need an OB if you risk out a midwifery care. That would be the only reason. Otherwise, your midwife is fully capable of managing every step of your pregnancy and birth. How do I combat early pregnancy headaches? Um, combating headaches, I would say hydration. And for many people, it's cutting out gluten. Whether you want to hear that or not, it's very effective and um, linked to cutting out gluten. Well, the other thing is in early pregnancy, we are very um, we are very prone to low blood sugar. So eating frequently, eating frequently, four to six small meals per day. 
So low blood sugar can trigger headaches. What is the best time to introduce solid foods for my baby? Is it four months or six months? It's neither. It's when they're reaching for your food. So are you cool with people giving babies food at four months if they're reaching for it? No, I don't think a four month old does reach for it. Do you think they do? My son didn't reach for food till he was a year and a week old. And my daughter didn't until she was eight months old. So maybe my sample set is too small to four month olds reach for food. If so, I'd be very careful about what I have within reach. Yeah. I usually say the same thing that you just said, except not before six months. I think it's generally too early. They should still be exclusively on breast milk at that point. I agree. I I never imagined any baby in the world reached before that point, but yeah, I guess it does happen. So I'm with you. Yep. Okay. Does a lot of vernix mean the baby came too early? No, certainly not. If there's a lot of vernix, it does indicate your baby might've been born on the earlier side of your gestate. And if your baby is born without vernix, it would indicate your baby was born on the later side of your guest date because the vernix already absorbed. But no, absolutely not too early by any means. My daughter was born at 39 weeks to the day and it was absolutely caked on her. This is a tons and tons of vernix. It's it's all good no matter what, no matter when. I agree. Do you support the use of Vitex to encourage ovulation? We were already talking about it twice in this episode that Vitex is a great um, herb or adaptogen for trying to support progesterone and particularly through supporting ovulation. So yes, hundred percent. I support it. It supports the LH surge, which supports ovulation. And when you ovulate, you're more likely to have progesterone production. It's, uh, it's probably one of the most common herbs for women who are struggling with hormonal issues in their thirties and forties. Here's a good one. Is it possible to orgasm differently during and after pregnancy? Nope. It's always going to be the same orgasm. <laughs> How do you answer a question? It like never that? gets better. Aren't they, it never aren't they gets all better. really, aren't they all really unique ultimately? <laughs> like, can we just say yes to that without really, without wondering if there's any other potential answer? What is she? Um, we want details. Yeah. Explain exactly what you mean by orgasm differently different how i mean here's what different i would say how. is <laughs> better bigger longer more more frequent multiples louder um, <laughs> louder <laughs> yes it's definitely possible to, to have it be different and pregnancy <laughs> the the high high levels of estrogen in pregnancy make us more prone to more powerful orgasm so I would say pregnancy is a great time to have your best orgasm of your life. And it's all downhill orgasms from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I would disagree with. I, I'm kidding. I just I think hope. the whole thing is hilarious. Um, all right. Let's, should we end on that one? <laughs> How do you top an orgasm? Of course we end on that one. What are we going to go to now? Like <laughs> Spit up, like baby hair spit falling up. out. Right. <laughs> no. Always end on the orgasm. It's like rule number one of podcasting. That's that's good life advice. (laughs) Don't forget that, ladies. (laughs) Over and out, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. 
All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. I'm just thinking. (laughs) You look stunned. (laughs) I look stunned. I'm ready to go jump in the lake. I will see you. I don't know. Maybe that first weekend we can grab dinner before you go to the shore. All right. All right. Cool. I'll see you soon, Trisha. Okay. Bye. Bye.